Sir Illin, bring me his head. Another History of Westeros podcast, another podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, as well as the TV show Game of Thrones. I'm just one of your hosts. I'm Steve, aka Friggin' Italian, here in Los Angeles. With me, of course, is my trusty co host, Aziz. Hey, Steve, good to be here. We're excited to talk about Dorn, and uh, we've got our special guest, Kenneth Lopez, here uh, from Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things podcast. So, Ken, say hello. Hi, Aziz. Hi, Steve. Uh, sorry I couldn't join you in the flesh, so to speak, um, but I did supply a nice uh, picture of the Stark family in compensation <laughs> for the fact that you don't actually get to see my face. Yeah, hey. so we, uh, that is not to be confused with the fact that Ken actually does look like that. He um, told us off screen, and we're not going to let that slide by, that he really does look like a nine-headed or however many heads that is uh, person. Uh, so, yes, yeah, uh, be very afraid. <laughs> so, right. uh, so, diving right in, we've been talking about Dorn a lot lately. We did a Dornish uh, episode uh, many, uh, several months ago, I guess, uh, introducing the history of Dorn. And, of course, some of you who remember, we had Kenneth on that uh, podcast as well. So we wanted to complete the circle and do a, a spoiler-filled episode on Dorn, talking about the plots that they've uh, that they're that they're dealing with, and, and the things that they've got planned, as well as uh, behind the scenes stuff. Of course, since we're a history of Westeros podcast, we're going to throw in a lot of history. And uh, for those of you who were with us last week, we did uh, a new a new chapter that was released from Winds of Winter. We did some analysis on that, and <laughs> cat walking behind my screen, <laughs> and. Uh, so we're going to keep the Dorn theme here and uh, finish it out and uh, get you guys all set on everything Dornish. Yeah, so, and, uh, so just to keep it spoiler-free, if you don't want to hear spoilers, I'm going to spoil you in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Sir Ellen, bring me his head. Lady Catelyn has her cut throat wide open and becomes an undead zombie <laughs> over the earth Westeros. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, way to bury the lead, Steve. <laughs> I, 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 love do, I love doing that part. That's, that's like my thing. That's my signature is doing this. That's true. You know, you just get spoilers. And by the way, I will throw in the Joffrey bite. Sir Ilan, bring me his head. <laughs> Spoilery Steve, that'll be your new nickname, right? Right. I gotta be in the sky. I'm gonna warn you about spoilers. And if you don't listen, stop now. God bless America. <laughs> so real quick, before we actually dive into our topic, we've got a piece of news that came out yesterday. And oh, yes. 
we like to talk. We like to keep our listeners informed of uh, all doings related to Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire. Even though a lot of you probably heard this already, in case you didn't, the upcoming uh, Dangerous Women anthology, which was originally supposed to include the fourth Duncan Egg uh, novella, will not contain a Duncan Egg novella, which is sad. But kind of sad. It's a, that's the bad news. The good news is it's going to be replaced by a novella entitled The Princess and the Queen, and it will deal with the origins of the Dance of the Dragons, a topic that we have covered uh, that we will have to recover after this comes out because there will be a lot of new stuff. Uh, but that's pretty exciting. Even though we will look forward to the Dunkin' Egg, it's, it's pretty cool that we're going to get uh, a, an interesting historical topic with uh, that certain features some thing, cool things like dragons and a lot of Targaryens. I just to clarify, it's the princess and the queen, not the princess right. queen, right? Right, yes, the princess and the queen, uh, which we assume is just referring to Rhaenyra, but it's open to interpretation. So if you all have some uh, some other ideas on what that title might mean, why don't you post them on our Facebook page or send us an email, and we'll make sure bring it up on the podcast. I, I check the email every, every day, so uh, by all means, you know, let us know. And uh, Aziz checks the Facebook page every day. So let us know what your thoughts are on this. If you have anything at all, any theories, by all means, put it out there. And, uh, you know, we might even put it online. You know, we might even put it out here on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's get started. Uh, the, the Dornish people, as we've covered uh, in the past, they're uh, a smaller kingdom. They're a bit weaker. They don't have uh, – they're, they're fiercely independent, even though they are part of the Seven Kingdoms. But – the thing that happens when you're uh, when you're not as mighty in terms of military strength, you have to look for other ways to sort of hold on to power and to prevent your enemies from getting uh, from being able to do damage to you. And so that means a lot of a lot of subterfuge, a lot of uh, planning, a lot of uh, being careful and cautious. And Dorn Martell is, of course, uh, the very embodiment of that description. Mm. So the most important events. Uh, relating to Dorne, uh, for the first few novels, there's not a lot that happens. So we hear about Dorne, we hear history about Dorne, we hear uh, bits and pieces about certain characters, but they don't really come to the forefront. Uh, they don't even really get introduced really at all until the end of Storm of Swords, maybe about a, a two thirds in, and they really, they really get a lot. A lot of stuff starts to get mentioned with them once we get into Feast for Crows, and as well as Dance with Dragons. Um, Doran Martell, you learn pretty quickly, has uh, a reputation for being uh, cautious. Maybe really cautious is, is perhaps an understatement. In a in a world where martial prowess and bravery uh, are considered the height of masculinity and uh, no, possibly one of the most noble things you can do, uh, Doran Martell is not that. He is ca careful and cautious, and a lot of people mistake that for cowardice. Um, and in fact, his own family accuses him of that several times. His own daughters. Yeah, his own daughters, uh, his own, his, his brother's daughters as well. He said that to his face multiple times. And, uh, but we learn as, it, as these chapters unfold that actually this guy is a serious operator and he has been working all kinds of angles for so long and so carefully and so subtly that even his own daughter didn't figure it out. Um, in fact, she had the opposite idea about much of what was going on. Uh, but we'll start with one of the smaller, lesser-known plots. We're going to go through these plots, uh, the Dornish plots that we've identified, sort of 
I guess one at a time. We'll discuss them, uh, roundtable format. Uh, and, of course, we'll throw in historical tidbits because that's what we do. So we'll start with the first plot that is really a small one, like I said, and it's not one that, that really got a lot of traction. But it's interesting to note because it shows where Dorn's loyalties uh, lie and who, you know, and where they sort of put their hopes. Initially, when Robert's Rebellion was finished, there was an attempt to raise Dorn for Viserys. In other words, Dorn was about to rebel again. Uh, after Robert rebelled against the throne, it was sort of like Dorn was going to rebel. But uh, this rebellion was mostly uh, drilled up by the Red Viper, who, of course, isn't wasn't in charge. His brother was in charge, and but of course he's a willful guy and, and uh, stubborn, and, and um, of course he was very close to his sister and his own his sister. You know, his the 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 children slain, Elias children slain, are his own blood. So he's he's uh, being a an angry man who's quick to take vengeance. Of course, he was he was ready to act, but John Aaron came down and kind of put down this talk. He, he sat down and got everyone gathered together and, and made them see reason and, and pointed out how you know, the realm needs peace, Robert's going to be a decent king, and you know it's not going to help anyone if you guys rebel. You're not going to get what you want. Mm -hmm. uh, so, let's see. So, Steve, what are your thoughts on, on what might have happened? It's not, it's not something we can really talk about what did happen because it didn't happen. There was a, a brief thought for Dorne to rebel, and they didn't. Uh, but what do you think might, might have happened if, if that had gone a little farther? Well, if, if there had been hotter heads prevailing, um, I, I think a rebellion would have been a major, major plot point in the story. The fact that it didn't uh, kind of tells that George wasn't ready to deal with Dorne just yet. That's my opinion. That's a good way to put it. What do you think, Kenneth? I think that's probably true, but I also think that um, it's it it, it 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 allowed Dorne to fight another day, and it allowed Dorne to do what they actually do best, which is to lurk in the shadows. Um, as you've already stated, Aziz, geographically and militarily, they are not a superpower. So I fear that had Dorne actually rebelled. Uh, like they were supposed to, and 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 uh, and uh, and challenged on Viserys's behalf, um, they would have probably been squashed like a bug, and maybe <laughs> annihilated. And so the Martells are too interesting a family to have been wiped off the map, um, much like Elia and her children were. So I'm glad that it didn't work out because what it allowed Doran to do is to do what he does best, which is like the uh, the Varys Littlefinger thing of playing the chess game and fighting with his mind instead of his brawn. One thing that I think might have happened, and one one clue we, we have potentially to what might have happened, is when you hear Obara and Tyene and Nymeria talking to Doran Martell. Now, remember who those three are. Those are the three of the eldest daughters of Oberyn himself, so the Sand Snakes. And they both, they had a, their reaction is interesting. Obara wanted to just take the two armies that Doran has, one in each of the, 
the passes that lead to Dorn and just flood out into the marches and just go mad. Attack, just uh, not try to conquer anything, just do a lot of damage. She wanted to, Obara suggested sacking Old Town. Uh, and then, but Tyene wanted to uh, cause the Iron Throne to want to come attack Dorne, which is where they have their strength. Tyene is smart enough to realize that Dorne cannot conquer outside of Dorne necessarily, but if they can at least get the enemy to come to them, they can do some damage. Yeah. Ultimately, I agree with Kenneth that they would have been defeated. I think they could have caused a lot of problems, especially if, if other people decided to join their cause as loyalists to the Targaryens. But ultimately, Viserys being incompetent and a lunatic would have kind of that would have stymied all other hope. Regardless of how what kind of military successes they would have had, they would have had to deal with that issue. And there's really no way to deal with that issue. You can't you can't have that guy as your king. That's just <laughs> yeah. Matt King number two. Uh, yeah. Be, he, he could have been worse. You never know. Because Robert and and Ned and John Aaron were never going to get behind Viserys. Um, they were anti-Targaryen, and they were going to remain anti-Targaryen even with Aegon uh, being killed by Jaime Lannister. So there was no way that that triumvirate was going to back down in their rebellion. So Dorne would basically have had to go against. Um, the full might of the Baratheons, the Starks, and and the Vale. And Tywin Lannister was probably never going to side with Dorne in, in, in a potential rebellion. He was probably always going to side with the Starks and the Baratheons, if nothing else, for his own... Um, for his own benefit. Right, of course, and of course so many Dornishmen blame Tywin for the death of Elia and her children, so those two, uh, as Tywin said to him, said it himself when he was speaking to Tyrion, he said, I had to make it known that we had forever forsaken the dragon, uh, which, you know, speaking of killing Rhaegar's children, so... Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't see uh, the Lannisters supporting uh, any sort of Targaryen faction anytime soon. <laughs> They've, uh, there's a bit of a blood debt there that is not going to go away uh, in, in a while, if ever. Uh, okay, so that's, um, so that was the first, basically that's the sort of the, their reaction to the rebellion uh, going down and their reaction to Elia being killed and her children being killed, which of course is a pretty huge deal. Now, for a long time, Doran was relatively dormant. Uh, they they sort of bided their time. Doran Martell apparently was working to bring down, bring a uh, bring to an end the works of Tywin Lannister. He he specifically stated that 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 was a goal of his. He told Arianne that in their final chapter at Feast for in Feast for Crows, where she confronts him about her her belief that she's going to set him aside in favor of Quentin, and he sets her straight. Uh, you know, tells her. The reason he couldn't tell her all these things is because she's a gossiper, and these plans were far too important and cautious to, to, to just to entertain her need to be included. Mm. I guess he underestimated her, though. He did not think she would go so far as to attempt to crown Marcella. Now, this is an interesting plot because it's probably the only Dornish plot uh, that got either, that got off the ground that is actually done and finished. These other ones that we're going to talk about are all sort of still in progress. Uh, well, I suppose you could say Quentin's plot is pretty much done with. <laughs> He's not going to be doing anything else. So I suppose you could say that one's uh, uh, in the in the bag as well. That one's on the shelves and, and finished. But 
I like to think of this one as the the the, only, uh, the one that we got to see all the way through and, and finished. And it showed us part of how Doran works, and it also shows us, given the new information we have on Ariane, how well, uh, how far she's come along, and the change in attitudes that she's had. So let's talk about let's talk about some of that. But but actually, the first thing we want to get to is more about the Red Viper. Uh, his next attempt at getting justice, of course, we're all most likely all familiar with this. Who could forget uh, the duel between the Red Viper and Sir Gregor, one of my favorite uh, action scenes in the entire series. And, and, and to clarify that, uh, for those who you know, are spoiler-free but don't know and want to know, um, this is where uh, Sir Gregor was actually championed by Cersei Lannister. Whereas Tyrion was championed by the Red Viper as to the innocence of who killed Joffrey. Right. And what, of course, this is Oberyn's way of working his way into uh, a duel with the man who he is certain killed yeah. his sister and at least one of her children. Uh, he's, he's specifically uh, known as the one that smashed baby Aegon's head against the wall uh, after raping and killing Elia. So, of course, Oberyn is going to want to fight this guy, even though he's fearsome and huge and terrible. And uh, so, it's actually kind of predictable when you see it. He's actually on the council, the small council for the king, and uh, that's kind of important, the fact is, it's like having the secretary of education suddenly declared duel with the son of the Secretary of State. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, he, it was a, basically a, an opportunity he couldn't pass up. No one was going to fight for Tyrion, and everyone knew that whoever Tyrion got to fight for him would face Sir Gregor. And the one guy who is willing to face Sir Gregor, it happens to be this very important figure. Yeah. And, of course... In retrospect, it's it's a having re, when you read it the second time, if you ever read it again, it, you, it dawns on you just how amazing this whole thing is that Oberyn has set himself up to really cause a big. No matter what happens in this duel, it, it, the the outcome is going to be significant. Yeah. If Oberyn wins, then Tyrion is set free, which is obviously not going to sit well with the Lannisters uh, because yeah. they think that he's guilty of killing. Uh, of killing Joffrey, and of course he's going to not sit with a lot of other people. And it's going to, and if it goes the other way, you've got what happened. Dor Oberyn dies, and all of Dorne calls for war, and they're angry, and, and you know he's the most beloved man. And I think Oberyn realized that. I think he knew how popular he was, and he knew that that uh, the way people would react either way would be a benefit. What do you guys think about that? About the duel in general, and about Oberyn throwing himself in the mix of things, and about uh, his his quest for revenge? Go ahead, Steve. I'll start with you. Actually, I want to hear Ken Ken's thought on this. Okay, Ken, uh, you go ahead then. Well, first of all, I love how it's like a dark uh, mirror reflection of the Princess Bride with Inigo Montoya, sort of going on and on <laughs> about revenge, and and when he die. I never got that. That's great. But when he's actually doing 
pulling the mountain that rides, he's actually talking to him like Inigo Montoya does in The Princess Bride because he's telling the mountain to his face all the crimes that he thinks he's committed. Um, and so it's this great sort of take. It's this great take on The Princess Bride, so I love that. Um, very entertaining, but not as funny as The Princess Bride. <laughs> Rather darker. Been darker. Instead of funny, it's darker. <laughs> right. It's, but it's, right. I mean, it's darker and. Elia! <laughs> wait, what? wait, and 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 in fact, I think he repeats uh, the same thing over and over again, just like Inigo Montoya. I think yeah. he says, "You killed my sister. You killed my sister." Like over and over again. You raped her. Um, you murdered her. You killed her children. Yeah, over and over. And yeah. eventually, it works. It kind of works. Gregor eventually gets loses his cool, yells at him, says, yeah. yells, shut up, and eventually openly admits that, yes, I did do all that. Yeah. Which is crucial because even though us readers know it, it, it wasn't actually widely known for certain that Gregor did that. He, it was just right. it was rumored, but not proven. But the guy actually openly admitted it in front of everyone, and that, that's the end of it. Everybody oh, yeah. I did it! I killed them! Yeah, right before he smashes Oberyn's face in. It's, yeah. <laughs> well, pulls him down on the spear. <laughs> uh, the uh, I the really, other thing uh, to look know. forward to seeing that one done on the TV show. I suppose it probably won't be until season four, but, um, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, cast they haven't even cast the Red Viper yet. But, yeah. I already know that they're going to have a very important scene. Spoiler alert, again. <laughs> very important scene from the next book. It will be in this next season. Oh yeah, yeah. The very important scene. The very oh, yeah, that very important scene. Of course, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're gonna have it this season, which means leads me to be believe that that scene will probably be season four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I think season four will probably begin with Joffrey's wedding, um, and then we'll get that whole. We'll get the introduction of the the Red Viper, Joffrey's wedding, and all, and and then the aftermath of the wedding will will take up all of season four. But yeah. you're right. Uh, I think season three will occupy that other plot point that we've talked about. Which kind of confuses me because we're not going to get a whole lot of Danny in those two seasons. Yeah, they might have to change. They may have to uh, edit the timeline a bit and kind of hey, add give some more stuff. She's going to get the Marine, so we'll do yeah. that. But other than, other than getting the Marine, there's not a whole lot for her to do. Well, yeah, I mean, what, one thing I hope they do, and we're getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but one thing I hope they do is I hope they actually flesh out her storyline unlike unsuccessfully doing it in Season 2. Like, they can flesh out her relationship with... Um, Drogo. With oh, no, with uh, uh what? what's the name of the mercenary that she has the hots for? Oh, Dario, yeah, Dario. Yeah. Dario. He's Dario. certainly been cast, so yeah, he's in uh, a. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, the other thing about the duel between the Viper and uh, Gregor is that I think is important is that it turns out that the Viper's sword is poisoned and the, the, the red Viper was known for using poison in, in his duels. So I think that's really important to note that 
uh, Oberon had a plan, and his plan was to get him to admit his crimes, which he did, and he had he was using a poison sword. Um, of course, it still didn't work out for Oberon because he did stab the mountain with a poison sword, but the mountain is like a freak, and he ultimately survived. Um, so to be nitpicky, wasn't it a spear? Yeah, it was a spear. Yeah, it was a spear. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Uh, he, and, uh, he got his first blow. I believe he, he he stabbed him in the back of the knee joint first, and then got him under the shoulder, under the armpit as well. It was just, I I know, my my question then is is uh, how much does Doran know about this? I mean, I, I'm thinking Doran knew about the entire thing, and he knew that you know the Viper was going to go in there and do and do just that, just revenge. I think he suspected that Oberyn would would do something. He was told his specific goal, what Doran instructed Oberyn to do, was to go to take this seat on the small council, gauge, uh, take a, take the measure of our enemies, take the measure of Common, take the measure of some of these other Lannisters. Because remember that some of these characters have never actually met Doran or Oberyn face to face. And so they all they know is rumor and and circum uh, and uh, you know what they've heard from other people. Uh -huh. So it's important for them to kind of get a real take on who these people are, who these leaders are, and what they're wh how they can be manipulated, whether they can be bribed, whether they can be coerced, whether they're drunks, whether they're you know who they're whether they have hidden lovers or and, and Oberyn is a very observant guy. And he told him not to cause any, not to provoke anyone. He said, "Don't provoke Lord Tywin unduly." Well, he pretty much did that. He, what does unduly mean? He he provoked Tywin the minute he accepted Tyrion's. Remember, uh, he, he became Tyrion's champion. That was a, pretty much a provocation. But so I'm not sure if if Doran envisioned Oberyn getting into a duel with Sir Gregor. I, I, that's a bit. The circumstances for that to have even happened in the first place are kind of hard to hard to see or hard to predict. Because who could have predicted that Tyrion would, you know, get blamed for this murder? It's kind of funny, actually. If under different circumstances, Oberyn would be one of the first people you'd look at to to consider as guilty for poisoning. Like, you know, the king is poisoned, and Oberyn has just shown up. <laughs> I mean, he'd be kind of an obvious suspect. Well, if circumstances that's different. That's point. I mean, look at how Quentin. Look at how Sir Barristan. Told Quentin, he's like, "Look, you're going to be blamed for the poisoning of, of Danny and uh, the locusts because everyone knows Dornishmen use poison. That's kind of a reputation that you guys have." And of course, Quentin didn't do that. But uh, actually, and speaking of, this is a very this is a conspiracy theory I've read about, and I've, I've I've entertained the notion myself. It's a small thing. I'll get your guys' opinion on it. I'm not sure. It's, it's I'm guessing that y'all haven't even heard of this particular conspiracy theory because it's pretty minor, it doesn't have a lot of, I haven't seen it have a lot of traction in a lot of discussion circles. But I do think there's some merit to it. And it's the notion that uh, Oberyn was, in fact, poisoning Lord Tywin. And the evidence for that is the fact that he was spending a lot of time, potentially, on the privy. Notice where he's sitting when Tyrion comes up. Uh, the latter uh, with his, you know, picks the crossbow and eventually kills him. Lord Tywin had been sitting there on the privy for quite a while, and we know based on what happens that his bowels empty after Tyrion shoots him that he was a bit stopped up. You can kind of guess that, and uh, it, you would think that Oberyn is not going to do anything obvious like 
a poison that just would kill Tywin. He drops dead. That would be too obvious. Oberyn, once again, Oberyn shows up and Lord Tywin dies with poison. Uh, hmm. Who might that be? Who has that in? So that would be too obvious. But if Tywin gets gradually sick and gradually sicker uh, over time, that would be, it would look like an illness. Um, so I, I'd like to, if you guys have some, an opinion on that, I, like I said, it's a kind of a new it's a theory that you may not have even been aware of. But um, if you guys have any thoughts on that, I'd love to hear it because I think it's kind of neat. Well, that's actually one of my favorite scenes in all the books. Um, and it's just for the gore factor, I think. <laughs> I mean, the fact that Tyrion shows up and swarms a coral into Tywin, spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, by the way, there's a YouTube video out there where Charles Dance, the black police Tywin Lannister, yeah. he's actually, you know, talking to a reporter, and it's just very, very, very casual. And they come up to him and say, by the way, have you heard about, you know, your future in the show? And he, go, and he actually says, well, somebody came up to me on the street who had read all the books and said, you die magnificently. <laughs> and, and he was like, oh. and so he actually asked, well, how do I die? <laughs> he told him. And he was like, oh, my God, that is kind of magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> I was cracking up. I was like, I, you can find it very easily on YouTube. And I was like, oh, my God, really? I mean, Charles Dance got ex basically got spoiled on how his character is <laughs> going to die. That's really funny. <laughs> He's going to die on the, to on the toilet, shitting himself with a coral in his belly. <laughs> Which yeah. I've been joking about for the past two years now. <laughs> That's great. Okay, what about uh, you? What do you think about that? That the potential for that having happened? I don't know if there's a lot of there's not a lot of evidence for it, but you know, what do you well, think? Well, I I actually think there's credence to the theory, and as soon as I read the the conspiracy theory, I latched onto it. I don't I don't think Quinton I I don't think uh, uh, Oberyn is responsible, but I definitely believe that Tywin was being slowly poisoned only because I feel like Martin spent an inordinate amount of time talking about how much, how putrid his corpse smelled. Right. Um, That's the other clue. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. That's a huge one. Yeah. And I, and I feel like Martin doesn't focus on anything like that unless he's going to come back and revisit it. So I feel like someone was definitely slowly poisoning Tywin. I'm not convinced it was Oberyn. Um, I think you have to put Varys on the list. Yes. I think you have to put potentially Cersei on the list. Um, Varys is obviously willing to take a human life, as we know from the end of Dance with Dragons, to yeah. achieve his goals. He took out Master Pycelle and Kevin Lannister at the end of Dance with Dragons. Well, so. And, and the, the thing is, is, uh, is, is uh, Varys has many times proclaimed himself, I am bound to the throne. Right. And to him, he's been, he's been with the throne since Targaryens. So as far as we're, we might even think he is loyal to Targaryen, yeah. not necessarily to Lannister or Baratheon or whoever. Right. Because uh, 
Go I'm ahead. just thinking that, that that Oberon wouldn't have had access to Tywin's food um, or Tywin's wine. And but if it someone, had been going on for some time, Tywin had, uh, Oberon hadn't been there very long. Right. Um, the other person is Littlefinger. L L Littlefinger would have greatly benefited from the power vacuum created by Ty Tywin Lannister's mysterious but naturalistic death. So, um, I'm sorry, but he hadn't gone to Harry Harrenhal yet. He was going to be gone, but of course, you could always have somebody else be doing it. It's possible. I, I do think that's a, 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 a negative as far as considering Littlefinger's potential is that he, he was, he's been gone for so long, but it doesn't eliminate yeah. uh, Obviously, he was part of the plot to kill Joffrey, and he was far away, so you know, yeah. he's, he's, he's still able to maybe make some moves. But yeah, I, I like Varys, honestly, as, as, a, as, a good, as, a good, um, as the prime candidate because he's certainly shown that he's willing to kill not only people, but he's, he killed Kevin, so killing Tywin doesn't seem like a stretch. Especially because Kevin, the reason he killed Kevin is because Kevin was doing such a good job of, of bringing the Lannisters and the Tyrells together. Their, their alliance was starting to fall apart. And, of course, that alliance was put together in the first place a large part by Tywin yeah. uh, and Littlefinger. But, uh, so if, if Varys is going to kill Kevin to keep that alliance from getting too strong, it, it, it's, it's only obvious that he would also be willing to kill Tywin. Um, yeah. So, and of course, he, if he's a hidden Targaryen loyalist or if he's trying to set things up for Aegon, obviously there's no greater threat to a successful invasion than the presence of the able, very able and capable Tywin Lannister. I mean, everyone's political situation changed when news of Tywin dying came around. And of course, of course trying to get back uh, more specifically on topic, the Dornish in, in particular, that was a huge deal to them because he's, you know, he's sort of public enemy number one to them for a lot of them anyway. Yeah. Uh, the guy that specifically had so many of their, their, their royal family killed and the guy that is, you know, basically in charge of the realm. I mean, de facto, he's not the, you know, he's not, he's not the king. Everyone knows that with Joffrey or Tom in ruling, it's really Tyrant in charge. I mean, no one's fooled oh, by yeah. that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the reactions to Oberyn's death. That was a bit of a catalyst for a lot of different events. It really shows how popular the guy was. I mean, you have you have you have prostitutes giving away their services for free. You have a, a man from King's Landing murdered just because he's from King's Landing, just a, just a regular fruit vendor, just killed because he's from King's Landing. The Dornish people were really really upset at Oberyn's death, even though. He got into this mess himself. No one murdered him. No one, it, there was nothing sneaky about the manner of his death. No one, uh, he wasn't betrayed. He wasn't dishonored. He got into duel and lost. Yet, the reaction is, especially from his own, his own daughters, they keep calling it murder. They call it murder. He was murdered. What are you going to do about our father being murdered, they say to Doran. And he can, this, it's not murder. <laughs> he's my, yeah, he's my brother. I loved him, but he wasn't murdered. And this is a content point of contention for, for the Sand Snakes because they, you know, they, they're, they're all wound up and angry about their father being killed and they want, they, they want blood. So it's important to note the reactions of various factions within Dorne because, of course, Dorne, we've, we've talked about Dorne Martell's reaction, but there's a couple of powerful houses in Dorne in particular that are, uh, their reaction is particularly important because of the political instability in Dorne itself. Doran doesn't have 
a great hold on Dorne. They're, as we've said, they're a fierce kind of independent people, and uh, they they don't take kindly to the notion of, of laying down and not uh, and just kind of taking violence in stride. That's not the kind of way that they, they act. They need to, you know, they need to get a reaction. They need to come back and, and get revenge. So. So let's talk about the various reactions to the Red Viper's death. Um, we're gonna have to. We're gonna be without Steve for a minute here. So Kenneth, I'll start with you. What? Uh, what? What was your? What's your take on Dornish's uh, Dorn's reaction to Oberyn's death, and well, what it means for the Dornish people, and uh, what might come out of it? Well, first of all, I think it was a great writerly trick of Martin's to not really formally introduce the. Um, the Martells until that you saw them react to the Red Viper's death. Um, because Elia Martell's death had been uh, 13 or 14 years ago. Actually, um, 17. Long time, yeah. So 17 years ago. Yeah. But the Red Viper was a beloved folk hero to the Dornish people. So his death in King's Landing would have been much more visceral for them his daughters his niece um the the various country people and uh different political factions of dorn so i thought it was smart of martin to wait to introduce the martels as an extended family and dorn as a kingdom until the red snake or until the red viper died in king's landing um as to what I think about the reaction to his death, um, I think it's it's a great way to introduce those individual characters and plot strands because it tells it it illuminates each individual character in how they react to his death. So the Sand Snakes are single-minded, uh, bloody, uh, violent, um, maniacal but super intelligent, and all of that is illuminated in their reaction to their father's death. Ariane was sort of like living the life of, of a spoiled princess, but she's, she's stirred out of her stupor by the death of her uncle to finally act against her father by, by conspiring to do this thing with Marcella. Um, and and seducing um, the king's guard uh, that was with her that was with Marcella. Um, so I, as far as the the reaction goes, I think it was pivotal to understanding Dorn's entry into the story and what motivates them to this day. Because I think that they want revenge, and they're not going to stop until they get it. It's funny because this is a, it's a good point. It's, it's, it, it takes something like this to unite them. They're kind of a, dis, an, 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 a people that isn't very well united. But something like this, they all pretty much have the same opinion on what needs to be done. They all want to go, they all want to seek get revenge. And, and you're right. Uh, he, calling him a folk hero is a really good way of putting it, I think. He's a legend in his own time. He's done everything. He's a, he's a master. As he, he's, a, he's perfected the art of, of the martial arts. He's a, he's a great warrior. He's a great poisoner. He's a great, uh, he's a really learned man. We were told that he forged four or six links at the Citadel. So he's, uh, you know, intelligent and he's uh, got political savvy and he's had 
he's got a reputation for being uh, quite a lover as well, as far as you know, his carnality, they refer to it. And he yeah. even formed his own sellsword company in Essos and uh, was successful with that for a while uh, prior to riding with the Second Sons, the mercenary company that Brown Ben Plum is in charge of uh, prior to him on Marrow. So there's a lot of uh, his popularity. You really can't understate it. And no, you can't. And you also can't understate the relationship between uh, Oberyn and his brother Doran, which I think is one of the most illuminating things about, about Doran is that him and his brother were so tight, given that they were ra so radically different as 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 men. They had almost polar opposite personalities, but by every indication, they shared each other's confidences. They told each other the truth, and they and they were in it together. So they were as tight as you can be as far as family goes, even though they were so radically different. And she and he was the face really of their family, despite Doran being the leader, the real yeah. prince, and being uh, a good ten years older than Oberyn. He uh, was in charge of a lot of of uh, what happened at the court. Arianne tells Sir Arius Oakhart that uh, she herself was in charge of like entertaining guests and feasts and something like that. And she, this is her way of saying how little her father thinks of her, while Oberyn was in charge of basically everyone. All the the Castellan and the Seneschal and all these other people at court, they all answered to him and then Oberyn would, you know, go to Doran and they would, you know, basically everything went through Oberyn because Doran uh, being dowdy and, and is, you know, a very weak older man uh, wasn't a very good face for, you know, as far as being a strong ruler. He is quite strong as far as his willpower, his fortitude, his patience, but physically, he looks like a weakling. He looks, you know, he's in a wheelchair. His knee, one of his knees is said to be the size of a melon. His toes are the size of grapes. I mean, the guy is a, you wouldn't want to look at him. And this is not a guy that a lot of people who, it's not the guy that a lot of uh, Dornish men, especially the, given the impression we've given of the Dornish people being very fierce and independent and wild and, and, and a bit violent even, this is not the kind of guy that they really look up to and say, this, we're glad he's our leader. You know, that's, the Red Viper's the guy that they all really think of as the real leader, I think. That's kind of the impression I got, even though Doran's the, the real, the truly the prince, they all sort of see Oberyn as the real power. And because he was the face and in charge, even though he really reported to Doran, a lot of them probably thought that he was actually kind of calling the shots as well, even yeah. though that wasn't the case. Well, what's interesting about your point about about Oberyn being the face of, of Dorne is I love how he represents the side of the Martells and the Dornish people that it, to me, is sort of pansexual. Um, the men sort of act like women, and the women sort of act like men, and it's just this big melding of sexual stereotypes in each individual person. So someone like Oberyn is comfortable enough in his sexuality to use poison all the time, which in Westeros is sort of known as a woman's tool or yeah. a woman's weapon, and, and, and the Sand Snakes and Arianne are often willing to be um, as assertive as men are traditionally to get what they want. Right, and there's plenty of warrior women in Dorne, Obara being a good example, yeah. um, and Nymeria to a lesser extent. 
Right. Even Tyene a bit, although she's more of a poisoner. And of course, Elia, the Lady Lance, the 15-year-old, who were, you know, mostly. I don't think she had been on screen prior to the Ariane previous chapter, but it, but certainly we see the bulk of, of of her in that chapter, and she's clearly is the Lady Jouster. So I mean, that's <laughs> yet another uh, who smells like a horse. Yeah. Yeah, who smells like a horse, exactly. <laughs> so, I think one thing we can take from this is that Doran, losing Oberyn is really huge for Doran. He, now he has to be sort of the face, and he's not really qualified for that. Uh, and also, he's lost basically this, a lot of the support of his family because a lot of the reason that his family was helping him, the Sand Snakes in particular, was because Oberyn, uh, that's the way Oberyn was leaning. Uh, so they would follow his lead. And like you said, they didn't really know how close Oberyn and Doran worked together. They seemed like such opposites. But oh, Doran has to point out to them later, he's like, y'all don't realize just how much we work together. Yeah. Oberyn was the face and he was the... The, the viper, but I was the grass that hid him and concealed him and allowed him to make his next move. But the and death of Oberyn, the death of Oberyn is sort of like the death of Ned Stark in the sense that the Stark children were never going to rise to ascendancy unless Ned died. The, in, in the same vein, Ariane Martell and the Sand Snakes were never going to truly rise to ascendancy unless Oberyn was out of the picture. Because Oberyn, Oberyn was going to continue to be hands-on as long as he was alive. But yeah. with his death, it forced Doran to really rely on both Ariane and the Sand Snakes in a way that he hadn't before. And, and probably some of the other members of his court that are you know, less, like, not, as, not as well-named or are, you know, sort of third-level characters or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Uh, which, which he's not necessarily very comfortable with because he's, you know, he's not a very trusting man. And he knows that his own rule is insecure, so there's a lot of people that are willing to maybe sell him out. Uh, so, when we talk about the Sand Snakes a lot, they're uh, going to be an, they're certainly an important part of this whole thing. I wanted to review where the Sand Snakes are and a little bit about uh, what their role is going to be in the future. Because as we know from Dance with Dragons, Doran gets them to swear on their father's grave that they will serve him and obey him. And, of course, they love their father so much, and, of course, they're a, it's a religious culture. Um, no more so than the rest of Westeros, I suppose, although I, I do have my suspicions that Doran is actually more devout than, than, than most. There's a lot of subtleties there. But we talked about some of that last week. Uh, so I do think that there's something to be said there. I think he's, uh, as far as, let's see, as far as the Sand Snakes go, he took them, he, he was very cautious with them. He, he had them locked up, as we know, because he was afraid uh, of what they were, what they might do, especially the fact that they were riling up the common people. No one loved the Red Viper more than the common people. He was popular amongst, the, amongst every level of society, but, I mean, like, like uh, Kenneth pointed out, he's essentially a living folk hero. And, yeah. I mean, he's the, the parallels of your, your favorite sports hero, or, you know, I don't even know if that goes far enough. It probably doesn't. But So, where are the Sand Snakes? First of all, we know where most of them are. We know where Obara is. Obara, uh, at least we know where she's going. 
He's going at the end of where where things stand at the end of the books where they're at this point. She is being sent to uh, deal with Darkstar. And at first we hear about her going out there, but then uh, to go with Bale and Swan. And then we hear that Ariel Hota has been sent as well. And Doran's being very careful with Darkstar, sending three very notable uh, warriors, warrior types to deal with this guy. Uh, there, to me, there's a chance that there's more to what we're told about Darkstar. He's said to be the most dangerous man in Doran. And it's Doran Martell who says that. Uh, and, of course, Doran, when he says something like that, you know, him, him being a, a cautious, well-knowing man, you, you take that pretty seriously. I don't know what Darkstar might know. I don't know if he has some sort of secret. Certainly he knows the truth about what happened with, with, uh, with Marcella because they're trying to say their, their you know, political spin so that the Lannisters don't come after them right away, is that Darkstar killed Ares Okart and did this damage to Marcella, uh, so, rather than Arya Hota having killed uh, Sir Ares Okart. So, but the, 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 the second Sand Snake, I, I, we're gonna, I guess we should talk about, let, let me back up, actually, let's talk about what we think is going to happen there. There's some, some uh, having Obara, Darkstar, Ariel Hota and Balon Swan all together up in the mountains of Dorne. I, there's a lot of different ways that could play out. What do you guys think is going to happen there? Well, I don't think Swan is going to survive because someone has to die of those four people. <laughs> and, yeah. and Swan seems to be the most likely first victim <laughs> of a skirmish um, because <laughs> he's not a well-known character. He's not as well-known as Hoda or... Obara, um, not that we know a lot about Obara, but I think we have a sentimental attachment to her just because she's a sand snake. Yeah. Um, so uh, w one thing that I predict is we'll see all of this through continued Hoda POVs. I don't know if we'll get an Obara POV. Since yeah. he's already established an Ario Hoda POV, I think he'll just continue to do that. Um, so I don't know if we'll ever get an Obara's head. Um, so that's one thing I think. The other thing I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Aziz, isn't Darkstar a relative of the Danes? He is a Dane. Yes, he's the he's a junior Dane. He, there's the Dane. He's sort of like a, the equivalent of you know there's Lannisters of Casterly Rock and there's Lannisters of Lannisport. He's he's sort of the equivalent of a a Dane of Lannisport. He's a Dane of High Hermitage rather than a Dane of Starfall. Starfall is the main branch. And Arthur Dane was the Starfall Dane. Uh, well, and uh, Darkstar is a, you know, High Hermitage Dane. I have to believe, and this is just a, a crackpot theory on my part, but I have to believe that one, that Martin's goal here is to use Darkstar as a way to ultimately reveal uh, the mysteries of Dane. Um, because that could be the he knows. Yeah, yeah. Because someone has to reveal those mysteries, and it certainly isn't going to be the uh, the young squire who's hanging out with the um, the uh, the. Edric Dane, yeah, he's too right. the brother without manners. Yeah, he's too young. I don't think he could know enough. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't know anything. He's too young. So if anyone knows the secrets of why Ashara tried to kill herself or did jump off the tower. It's Darkstar. So I feel like Martin is going to use Darkstar as a way to tell the reader 
what happened with Ashara Dane, possibly what happened with Ned. Was Ashara really in love with Ned, or was she in love with Ned's brother? As now there's speculation and confusion about which Stark brother she was really in love with. So I, yes. I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily open that whole can of worms. But I do feel like Martin is going to use uh, Dark Star as a way to sort of illuminate all of those mysteries. That's a good point. I like that. It's kind of where I was going with the secret that he might know. Um, but, yeah, I, I, it's a difficult to see how that would be told on screen, but I don't, I don't doubt it. Just because I can't imagine it doesn't mean it won't happen. What I, do you think? I, I think that uh, uh, Martin might actually use it to stir things up more. Mm. Yeah, I think that, like... Having all these important characters go to us going to this place that doesn't, you know, on the surface, maybe doesn't seem like it could be that big a part of the whole general plot, uh, but but really it could because of this aspect. I think I think it's going to be a very big deal when they get there. Yeah. So uh, now, as far as another possibility, I think, given what you said about Balon Swan fighting and dying potentially, well. If history repeats itself, it, it, Ariel Hota predicted that he would fight Sir Aerys Oakheart, and he did. <laughs> yeah. He almost predicted exactly how it happened. And on that day, you know, Ario had no doubt about who would win that fight. <laughs> He's just extremely confident in his skills, which yeah. are apparently quite prodigious. He he kills Ario. He kills Aerys Oakheart almost the way he envisions it, uh, cutting his head off instead of having his axe cave in his skull. Pretty similar. <laughs> uh, he also sees himself, envisions himself fighting Sir Balan Swan and realizes that it would be a much different kind of fight. Whereas Aris Okar basically just charged right into his axe. Balan Swan is a more wary fighter and Ario ha has this read on him where he says, yeah, this guy, he, he will, he'll make me come to him. He'll, he'll hide behind his shield and, and uh, give me more of a fight. So I wonder if that's going to happen, too, since he predicted the first fight and it happened. He's predicting this one. It's kind of hard to see how that would happen, though. How are they going to all of a sudden be on the opposite side? Well, maybe, you maybe bring Dark up... Maybe tells the truth, maybe he, and, and, and Balin believes it. I don't know. Well, here's one thing that I think is really interesting. We know almost nothing about Darkstar's motivations, so it could turn out that Darkstar has sympathetic motivations and that he's actually a quote-unquote good guy. Um, even though his actions thus far would seem to indicate the opposite. But, yeah, since we know, but since we know so little about him or why he did what he did, I feel like Martin may be setting us up for a total punk out where um, it turns out that Darkstar is really um, doing something good. Interesting. I had never considered the possibility that he was uh, on that, on, you know, working for you know, quote-unquote good, whatever that means, but... Because he just yeah, he comes off as everything we were told about him. He's cruel. He's vicious. He's he's uh, even Oberyn Martell, you know, considered killing him because he was you know a, what he is or whatever. But uh, but that doesn't mean he can't be doing something that uh, is is a positive for the realm or or know, for Dorn or for Dorn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I, I doubt he gives a fig about you know the the, the Reach or the Stormlands. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Yeah, he yeah, might yeah. he might care about Dorn. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's see here. Let's move on. Let's talk about some of the other. We're going to move into some of the other sand snakes now. 
Tyene and Nymeria. This is this is all all sorts of what ifs are going to come from this discussion. We've got uh, Doran sending the two of them up to King's Landing, sort of as a two-pronged uh, attack, so to speak, as far as getting in, um, setting the Dornish situation up to be much better and having a much better flow of information. By the way, Doran clearly has someone or some multiple someone's feeding him some pretty important information from King's Landing. He knows things that are, are kind of hidden. Uh, but now... With Tyene and Nymeria going there, he should be able to find out a lot more. He should have a lot more information to work with. So let's talk about them individually. First of all, Nymeria. She is taking her father's place on the small council. She's taking Oberyn's spot. It's basically the Dornish seat on the small council. It's kind of how they're referring to. Um, Cersei, of course, uh, to talk about a, a, plot, a Lannister plot that affects the Dornish, sort of a, a related circumstance here. Cersei has, of course... One of her very standard go-for-it-all type plans where she tries to maximize the, her profit in her plotting, which is she wants to make the very ambitious move of killing Tristan Martell and blaming it on Tyrion at the same time. Right? Exactly. Which, of course, and of course the point of getting killing Tristan is that so Marcella is no longer engaged to Dorne. Uh, yeah. So she wants to have Marcella back. So, now, how does Tyrion, now, Ty, uh, rather, Doran is informed of this plot. He knows that, that Tristane is going to be murdered and that Cersei is behind all this. We have no idea how he found that out. But that's pretty deep. That's a pretty serious uh, plot to have information on. Yeah. Not the kind of thing that Cersei likely discussed with many people. So, yeah. I, I mean, uh, once again, you think of Varys. I mean, eh, I don't know. We, we don't have any... Any like specific hints that Doran is dealing with Varys, but pretty much every conspiracy theory surrounding Varys involves making nice with Doran. I don't see any of Varys's plans working without Doran as an ally. Certainly, nothing he's done points to making an enemy of them. Yeah. So, good chance Varys is the guy feeding him info. But if, if not, and it's possible Varys is feeding him info, and Doran doesn't know that it's Varys feeding him info. Doran may not know that Varys is his ally. Uh, well, I think I think Doran is far too smart and pragmatic to not want to know who's giving him information. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, it's possible Varys realizes this and and, and uh, has, you know, is pretending to be somebody else like he often does. So maybe Doran thinks he's dealing with, you know, make up a name, and it's actually Varys. But I agree with you. That's a, that's a good point. Doran is unlikely to be dealing with too many people that he doesn't know who they are, what their motivations are why they're spelling secrets, you know, all that. Um, well, the thing I love about the Sand Snakes in general, and then I'll get to a point about specifically Nymeria, is um, it, it always seemed to me that uh, different parts of Oberyn's personality were distilled to the three girls, the three oldest girls. So Obara yeah. got his physical prowess, Nymeria got his political and intellectual prowess, and Tyene got his sort of manipulative, sensual prowess. Yeah. Um, and so, and so I sort of love that the Sand Snakes, if, if, if the three girls could be melded into one person, it would be like Oberyn Jr. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but about Nymeria, here's my, here's my thought. Like, when I think about Nymeria, uh, I think it's possible that she could 
end up allying herself with Marjorie Tyrell. I think that would be really interesting given the political uh, state of things in King's Landing and where we left them. With Kevin's death, Cersei is going to have to step up whether she wants to or not. Um, and I, I have a feeling she'll want to. But um, but it, she'll have to step into the power vacuum. I think Nymeria, what other person can she possibly ally herself with in King's Landing at this point? It's full of flunkies and incompetence. It seems like Marjorie Tyrell might be the only savvy person that Nymeria might be able to ally herself with. That's a good point. See, and it's completely coming from an op the opposite way I was coming from. I am thinking that Nymeria will use her influence on the council to potentially manipulate the trial against Marjorie and potentially make it so that Marjorie is in, you know, has a hard time in the trial. Maybe makes it work out the wrong way for her. Although, if either of the Sand Snakes are going to do that, it seems like Tyene is more likely, but we'll get to that. Uh, so that, that's a really good point. Um, I assume because they are so uh, set on revenge that, uh, that she wants to go after Marjorie, but maybe not. What do you think, Steve? Um, yeah, you, I, I think you had a point there. Um, I'm more in line with Ken on that point uh, that uh, I think that most of them are going to be working against anybody for the crown. And right, right now, Marjorie is for the crown, even if it is for the wrong reasons. If that makes sense. Perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, if she does work together, this is all, like I said, I mean, this is something that hasn't even occurred to me, is she could be doing it as a way to perhaps pull the Lannisters and the Tyrells apart and say, hey, hey Tyrells, maybe you shouldn't be uh, getting in bed with the Lannisters. Maybe you should be in bed with us. With us. We've yeah, got, absolutely. especially if they have like Daenerys or Aegon on their side, like you can, maybe Marjorie could wind up marrying Aegon. Yeah. That would be kind of weird for her to go on to a fourth husband. Hey. That's going to be the real whole game changer is whether or not Aegon is Aegon, and you know if Danny comes over, that's going to be the game changer for everything. Yeah, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the potentials at the end, as far as the what ifs. The what ifs are going to be a big fun part of the, the last the last bit of it. Um, but let's talk about Tyene. Uh, Tyene, of course, is going to work her way is going to work her way into the High Septon's good graces. She, her mother, was a Septa, so she's all very well trained in. Uh, you know, how to behave like a Septa and, and priestly behavior and things like that. So she's got a chance to work herself in that way. Now, what's interesting about that is my take on the High Septon is that he's not the kind of guy that would want to work with her, uh, but I could be wrong. What do you guys think about that? Well, I don't think that we've seen her true powers of manipulation yet. And if anyone can pull off the sweet, innocent act um, in a way that seems devout and sincere, even to the high septum, it's probably Tyene. And so I feel like she, she at least stands a good chance of getting into his inner circle and possibly influencing him. That's a good point. Steve, what do you think? That's a very good point. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't recall Tyene very well. Um, okay. <laughs> I do remember that she was... The way I remember her is kind of subvertly rebellious, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's true. You're right there, yeah. There's a lot of things to, right, to, 
Doran's face that are like insulting, but they're it's a, it's a you know it's very subtle. Exactly. So um, that's really all I got right at the moment. So it seems like she will. She's got the like I said um, when we were talking about Nymeria, she has a, the most potential to manipulate Marjorie's trial. I think so. Uh, the one thing I can see happening is that obviously Nymeria and Tyene are going to be working very closely together. If Nymeria starts to befriend Marjorie, then then and, and it looks like a potential alliance is possible. Uh, as odd as it may sound for the Tyrells and the Dornish to be an ally, uh, you know, stranger things have happened. But it has to be considered a possibility, as Kenneth says. So if it looks like Tyene Nymeria is making good in routes with Marjorie, then I don't suppose Tyene will try to make things worse for Marjorie in the trial. But if if there's no opportunity for alliance and the Tyrells are clearly just going to be an enemy, then I see Tyene manipulating the trial to some house, to some degree. And the number, the way she can manipulate it, there's a couple of different ways she can manipulate it. Of course she can manipulate the High Septon's decision by being his confidant um, and, you know, putting, getting some of her opinion into his mind. But Tyene's a poisoner. She's known for being a poisoner, yet we have no no record of anyone she's killed. I'd say it would be a huge upset, a huge surprise if she doesn't poison somebody. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's well, got to kill somebody, right? <laughs> can I ask what your basis is on that? Just because she's a poisoner. I, there's no real, I don't really have any, there's no proof that she's going to kill anyone. We just know that she's a poisoner. We know that she's, that Oberon taught her how to, how to be a poisoner. We know that, uh, the, the maester that is uh, around when Doran is dealing with her is a, is, a, is paranoid about her poisoning Doran himself. Uh, yeah. So it, she's, it's just what she's set up to do. She's set up to be a poisoner. So I just have to guess that she's going to kill somebody. <laughs> maybe it'll be one of the judges, of the trial judges, or maybe it'll be someone like Cersei, actually Tommen. Somebody big like that, but it, I think it'll be something more subtle, like a, a particular person that has an that has a vote, or a particular person that's in a, a lesser uh, position of authority, but something that's kind of important in their plans. It's hard to pinpoint where that'll be, but I, I'm gonna go ahead and say, for record, Tyne's gonna kill somebody. <laughs> I don't have any idea who. I, I, I can understand that. Um, how upsetting would it be if she did not? <laughs> I don't think I'd be upset other than that I made the guess and turned out to be wrong. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the, uh, the other thing about the Tyene storyline to remember is that the church is militarized at this point and that they're becoming more and more in and of themselves a military power. Um, so I feel like the other thing Tyene could do other than influence the trials of Marjorie and Cersei it, or the trial of Marjorie is she could find a way to utilize the growing military power of the church itself. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. The, the militarization of the faith is a huge thing that kind of slid by. Is another yet another example of Cersei going for this huge score, thinking she's done something amazing, and really she's done something really stupid. And just yeah. to refresh your memory, in case some of the listeners don't forget what happened, she basically traded the church uh, the right to rearm, the right to have their own military order in exchange for uh, forgiving a rather substantial debt. Now, yeah. In the history of Westeros podcast, we haven't actually covered this topic yet, but it's a topic that we're going to get to at some point. 
real briefly, the, when the faith was militarized in the past, they were a huge problem for the Targaryen kings. Igor the Cruel spent most of his reign dealing with them, and at one point he had put a bounty on them. There were bounties for the heads of members of the faith's military order. That's how bad it was. And actually, um, I mean, since we're spoiling free right now, in the Duncan Egg stories, we actually find bodies. Yeah. Faith militant. Yeah. It's, it, it was really bad. So um, you don't want to... Uh, you don't want to understate the value of that. Now, they haven't had a lot of time to get going, but it sounds like, especially from if you follow Brienne's chapters going all over uh, all over uh, the Riverlands and King's Landing area, uh, the Crownlands as well, there's a lot of just poor people, a lot of disconnected people, a lot of people that have no home. And in, in, in our own human history, when times like that happen, people turn to the church more than ever. Because yeah. they're desperate, they have no hope, they don't even have food. So the one thing that, that is giving them a solution, the one, the one uh, institution in all the realm that has any hope of helping them is the church. So even if, they're, even if this militant thing is just getting started, uh, you've got to think that a lot of people are going to join up real fast. In fact, Cersei sees that on her way to the church. She's got to get people out of her way. There's so many people milling about in, this, in, the, uh, in the courtyard there and out front of the church, kind of making their own, like, there's like tents. It's like a tent city almost. People just like living there. She's yeah. got to weed her way through all that. So there's just a ton of people. Basically, there's no lack of willing soldiers uh, no. for, for the faith militant. It would be really interesting to see if Tyene could figure out a way to control and harness that power, either directly or by manipulating the high septum. Yeah, I, I, that's a really, that's a, that's a fun thing to look forward to. Um, now, real quick mention of another Sansa. We talked about Obara, we talked about Tyene and Nymeria, and we talked a bit about Elia Sand. One that we didn't mention is Sorella. Uh, and, of course, we didn't mention the really young ones. The young ones don't matter a whole lot. We'll, 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 I'll mention where they're at in a second. But uh, Sorella is sort of the biggest mystery. We are pretty certain we know where she is. She's almost certainly at the Citadel. There's a character there named Alaris the Sphinx who we're introduced to in the preview or the, or the prologue. And Alaris backwards is Sorella. I mean, yeah, that's pretty obvious when you look at it. Also, she looks like the Red Viper. She's got the Widow's Peak, although she's a boy. She's pretending to be a girl. She's pretending to be a boy. Um, so I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, but and so she's also following her father's footsteps. If you want to take that three-headed sand snake that makes up their father, you can even you can add a fourth head because she's studying uh, at the Citadel just like her father did. So I think that's pretty cool. Her, her, her future in the story, I really have no earthly guess as to what she's going to be doing. No clue at all. I, I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on that. Well, th I, I think I touched on this the last time I was actually on your podcast. I feel like Old Town, in general, is about to explode, narratively speaking, with Sam there and with possibly Jack and Hagar there as faux pate. Um, we don't know what Faux Pate's mission is, why he's there. We also don't know what uh, uh, secrets the, the Citadel may hold about dragons or about magic in general. So I feel like a Sand Snake being there, Sam being there, and possibly Jack and Hagar being there in the guise of Faux Pate tell me that Old Town 
or at least the secrets of Old Town, might be ready to explode. I think you're right. There should be some chapters, some, some chapters more devoted to Old Town. And uh, one other thing that there's mentioned that's uh, of lesser import, but also has to do with Old Town, is we hear that, that the Ironborn have been raiding in that area too. So we may also have some uh, some 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 of their presence involving in that narrative. But you're right. I like the I like the point that the narrative has has really taken a lot in that in that area. There's so many characters that are important there. What do you think, Steve? I think so. I I, I think I agree because uh, yeah, we did get a hint of uh, the 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 Ironborn coming around the coast and you know and raiding the area. Um, as far as who's actually. I don't know the, the point of contact in Old Town. Yeah. Um. I mean, we know it's Pate, but who is Pate? There's a lot of speculation out there. There's a lot. I mean, I, I sit there research it, and there are so many theories as to who yeah. Pate really is. I'm pretty sold on it being Jacob, but it's you know we can't be certain until until I, he tells us or if he tells us ever. <laughs> I th that's a very good point. That's a very good one, and that's actually a very popular one. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure on that though. Not until you get some more details from George. Once yeah. Spritz out more detail. Maybe I'll come up with some more certainty, but uh, yeah. Let's I talk mean, about the resistance next then. Let's move on because we don't have a ton of time. So we've got a couple of topics we want to get to real quickly. Um, we've got the rest of the sand snakes. Their names are Obella, uh, Loreza, and uh, one more here. Uh, which yeah. Okay. So. They are the younger ones. We talked about the older ones. The younger ones, where they're at is interesting because it, it, it allows us to touch on some historical subjects that, as well as touching on where the loyalties of certain important Dornish houses lie. Yeah, uh, it does. It really which does. Is, which is huge because that's going to there, – there's a, there's, a, there's a big chance, uh, especially if you look at some of the topics we discussed in the Ariane spoiler chapter episode – there's a chance that Dorne kind of falls into chaos, especially if, if, if possibly multiple factions come out of it, especially if Doran dies anytime soon, which, of course, given his health, yeah. it's a big stretch, especially he's going to find out that Quentin's dead, which is likely yeah, depressing. Yeah. The, the, the far west coast, the far western, uh, along the Bone Marrow Pass, and uh, yeah, all that can fall into pieces very quickly, very quickly. So, uh, one of the children the uh, we have uh, Obella is at Sunspear being cupbearer for Manfrey Martell who is a cousin of Doran and Oberon uh, we have Doria at the water gardens and the water gardens of course is that's where a lot of the young children hang out um, Loreza stays with her mother and this is going to give us uh, a good segue to talk about the Ullers of the Hellhole which are uh, have a fun little backstory and they're kind of they're just interesting in general now, Elia Sand herself, I'm sorry, uh, Ilaria Sand herself, o Oberyn's paramour, is a bastard of Lord Harmon Uller of the Hellhole. Uh, the, so, of course, there's a strong family connection there. So all the Sand Snakes are connected to the Ullers because of Ilaria being a bastard of the Ullers themselves. So... Oberyn has a, himself has a big connection to them as well because, of course, his lover, who he was with for a long time, uh, her father, is, you know, an important lord. The, a little bit of history on the Ullers. 
uh, we don't know how how far their how far back their house goes, but it, it sounds like they're as as old as most of the oldest houses in Dorne, as old as Ironwood and Martell, etc. Uh, they have a their sigil is is a flames on a yellow background, and they get this sigil from an incident where they had some unwelcome quote unquote visitors in their castle. Perhaps they were conquerors. Perhaps it was just somebody that they didn't like that they lured there to trap. What will the the short version is? They burned the room where these people were at, and, and set kind of you know had them killed via via fire. And I guess that's where the hellhole gets its name. In addition to the fact that it's built out in the desert, uh, it's and it's in a really hot region uh, that is very harsh and unforgiving. What people say about the Ellers, I like this. This is a funny quote. Half the Ellers are mad, and the other half are worse. That's a great quote. <laughs> Um, so, they were notably opposed to peace with King's Landing. They were one of the most openly aggressive about, uh, in opposition to Doran's policy of sort of playing nice with the Lannisters. Now, we know that he was taking his time and trying to find the right moment to strike, but the others were more about getting revenge sooner, getting something quicker. They're more of Oberyn's line. They're more along his lines. Yeah. Um, now... Uh, they also are important to Arianne because when she's trapped in the tower, she thinks of the others as one of the most important allies that she has. So it's quite clear that she also says that when they are their, their plot to, to put Marcella on the throne, they were going to uh, go ahead with the actual coronation of Marcella, they were going to do that at the hellhole. That was going to be basically the center of their sort of rebellion. Uh, so keep the others in mind going forward. They are not, they haven't been talked about a lot. In fact, I don't, we've only seen the others on screen very briefly. Uh, but we, other than that, I they're know. pretty subtle. They're, their influence is pretty subtle at this point. But I, I would keep an eye on them for the future. The one time we do see them, which is a good segue to talk about where some of the other loyalties lie throughout Dorne, is this a very important scene. When the skull of Gregor Clegane is presented to the Dornish court, they have a feast. Oh, they man. have this great feast with Balan Swan as guest, and they have a toast to, of course, as is always the case in uh, any noble that has high visibility, they always do a toast to the king. And so when they toast King Tommen and the court, it's Ariel Hota takes note of who drinks and who doesn't. It's very noteworthy who drinks and who doesn't. Those who drink are either kind of along, they're either following Doran's lead or they're playing nice or they genuinely support the throne, which I wouldn't expect very many of them to do that. Yeah. But the ones who don't drink, those are the ones who are basically associated with the rebellious plots, the ones who are likely to be outspoken in their opposition to this peace. They want war, they want blood. So let's go through that list really quickly. The people who do drink, of course, Balon Swan himself, Arion, Lady Jordane of the Tor, uh, Lord Alarion of God's Grace. Now he's interesting because Lord Alarion of God's Grace is the father of the Bastard of God's Grace, the Bastard of God's Grace is Sir Demon Sand, Oberyn Squire. And Sir Demon does not drink, but his father does. So that's interesting. Uh, the Knight of Lemonwood, uh, as well as uh, the, the families at Ghost Hill, who get mentioned a lot in the area, spoiler chapter, as well as Ilaria Sand herself. 
Now, those who didn't drink, this is where it gets more interesting because these are the ones who you got to look out for. These are the ones who possibly would have supported Ariane if her plot had gotten farther off the ground, and they'll be the ones that are going to be more excited than most about teaming up with Aegon and or Daenerys in order to overthrow the Lannisters. Uh, Sir Demon said, I already mentioned, but we also have Lord Tremon Gargallon. We also have the Fowler twins, basically the basically Lord Fowler and his his daughters here. The Fowler twins are are uh, pretty well known for being opposed to the Ironwoods, for being in uh, being supporters of the Martells, the Fowlers. Uh, back in the day, we don't know. I use in the day because we don't know exactly how far along ago this was. But it was during the time of Nymeria herself when Nymeria came along and joined her strength to House Martell, and Martell made a play to be overlords of all of Dorne, the Fowlers had a choice to go with the Ironwoods or the Martells, because the Ironwoods, once again, were the second most powerful house in Dorne. And the Martells, uh, the, the Fowlers chose to uh, ally with the Martells, and the Ironwoods have never forgiven that. Uh, Arian also thinks of the Fowlers as an important possible option for her as allies um, for her plot. So that's, that's pretty important. Now, we also have... Sir Dagos Manwoody, uh, the Ullers, we mentioned the Wiles, who were uh, a house in the Boneway, uh, and Cain and Nymeria, of course, they don't drink. And Obara makes a dramatic show of it. She lets them fill her drink up, and then she turns it over to let it spill all over the floor, and then she storms out. <laughs> so she's kind of dramatic about it. A lot of people are more subtle. They're just like, no, we're not drinking. They refuse to drink, or they turn their cups over yeah, before the wine is presented. But she just makes a big show of it and stalks out. So she's just... She's, uh, she's not shy. <laughs> so what do you guys think about that? About the, the, the various political machinations and the various alliances, just the, the general perspective of, of uh, Dorne's stability. I think that's kind of what we want to get at. We'll start with, uh, we'll start with Kenneth. Well, uh, I, I think it's definitely um, interesting uh, to see the, uh, the continued inner politics of Dorne um, and Dorn and, and Doran's grasp on those politics. Uh, I feel like um, what Martin may be setting us up for is the the vacuum that may be created within Dorn if Doran Martell dies. Um, and and I, I can't believe that Martin is giving us this information for any other reason than setting up what would happen in Dorne if Doran Martell was not there, and how would Arianne deal with these fine political factions if her father wasn't around and she was forced to lead uh, the Kingdom of Dorne. Um, so I, I, I feel like the individual stories are compelling, but I think the reason why they're compelling is the thought that maybe Ariane will have to sort it all out in the wake of the death of her father. That's, that's a good point. I think that I think uh, the one thing to look for is going to be uh, some of these things we talked about as far as where some of the alliances lay and who's, who's, who's allied for what. One thing that I thought was really important is, is Quentin. We haven't really even gotten to talk about Quentin that much. Quentin was a, actually really important as far as, uh, as his, his political value is maybe higher than a lot of people realize because he was the bridge between the two most powerful houses in Dorne, which are Martell and Ironwood. And Martell and Ironwood had a lot of bad blood. Not only did they have the bad blood that I mentioned as far as them being the two that fought over 
overlordship of Gorn, uh, and Ironwood has maintained its position as second most powerful throughout that. Also, we have this episode of, of Oberyn killing via poison the lord of Ironwood, uh, you know, a generation ago, roughly, you know, 20 years past, when he went over and was young. And that certainly didn't help the bad blood between the two houses. Quentin was the bridge, essentially, built between the two houses to repair that damage. Doran sent young, pleasant, uh, hard-working, you know, Quentin to, to build, to be a bridge, essentially. He was the bridge to, between the two houses. Uh, he took his knighthood, Quentin did, from Lord Ironwood himself, rather than taking it from his uncle, which is a pretty, which pretty telling. And the younger Ironwoods loved Quentin. You saw how loyal they were to him. They followed him on this really, really stupid plan <laughs> to tame this dragon. Yeah. They did. I mean, they went along with him, despite they complained the whole way, like, look, this is not smart. This is not going to work. But they did it anyway. They loved this guy. They loved Quentin. They did. I mean, Cletus, or not Cletus, uh, Archibald beat the flames off of Quentin with his bare hands. I mean, these guys were really willing to do that. And quite literally, that bridge between these two houses has been burned. So... I I think I disagree with you, Aziz. Okay. I, I don't know if that bridge is burned, and here's why. As you've already stated, Arch, Archibald really thought of Quentin like a brother. And I feel like there's a chance that Archibald may form a working relationship with Barristan Selmy in Marine, and therefore maybe Daenerys Targaryen in the future. And 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 in a way, I feel like that bridge may still exist because of the good work that Quentin has already done um, in 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 um, in engendering such loyalty in Archibald and and the other fellow. And I feel like with both of those guys still alive in Marine and possibly working with Barristan Selmy in the future, um, and therefore maybe Daenerys herself. I, I feel like that bond, at least between the Ironwoods and Daenerys, and possibly it's a triangle that connects the Ironwoods, the Martells, and Daenerys Targaryen, um, I think that bridge is still alive and kicking. I don't know if it's been destroyed. Well, the reason I might think it's destroyed, I'm, I'm not certain it's destroyed. The reasons I suspect it could be are, one, there's gonna, they're going to hear about Quentin dying long before they ever get to deal with Daenerys or face her, and it's probably not going to reflect well on her, even though we know she had nothing to do with it. She wasn't even there. Uh, the fact that he, he did refuse to marry her, she did refuse to marry him, and you know she turns up dead at the hands of the dragon. I, I'm not sure how the rumor mill is going to take that, how they're going to hear about it. I think it's going to affect it a lot. And I do agree with you that I think it'll go pretty well if Doran is still alive. But if Arianne is in charge, I don't know that Lord Ironwood and Arianne will get along. When you see Arianne's... Now, of course, keep taking this with a grain of salt because Arianne's opinions have changed dramatically since Feast of Crows. But she is extremely paranoid about Lord Ironwood. Uh, she sees him as, a, as another... She literally thinks of him as another Criston Cole. Someone trying to set her aside in favor of the male heir. So, Arianne doesn't trust him, although I'm not sure if... She may have come around on that um, because she's matured a lot and she has had a lot of talks with her father. But that is... A, to me, that's a possible... 
content point of contention uh, between those houses. Also, if I also got to think that Lord Ironwind might not be too thrilled about the notion of a Dor Dornish alliance with Aegon, because you know they were more they're they're more interested in this alliance with Daenerys. And I'm not sure that an alliance between Aegon and Daenerys is going to happen. It's it's really convoluted this political situation. You can really see it going a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, well, the uh, other thought is that Archibald is a good-looking young man. Uh, I have this wild thought that maybe uh, once Archibald and Daenerys, because uh, presumably if Daenerys gets to Westeros, Archibald might be with her. He might be one of her lieutenants at that point. And yeah, so I have, yeah. I have this wild thought that maybe Archibald and Arianne Martell might fall in love. Oh, that'd be interesting. <laughs> I wonder, yeah, you wonder who the best option for her as a marriage would be. Like, he's not going to, Archibald doesn't, isn't going to inherit anything, so he's just behind her by marriage. He doesn't have any land. He's not an heir. But that would be neat. That would be interesting. Tyrion would be the best match. What's that? Tyrion would be the best match. <laughs> oh, wow. Tyrion and Danny getting married. Wow. <laughs> That's He's beauty beast right there. Hey, that, and it's funny that that is a kind of a Beauty and the Beast kind of thing. And of course, George wrote for that TV show. So hey, maybe that's it. <laughs> hey, Tyrion is Tyrion is already a married man. He cannot be a polygamist. He is married to Santa Stark. Yeah, but aren't you happy about the notion of him annulling that marriage and, and being with somebody else? Because then it frees Santa up for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I want. I want Tyrion to come back to Westeros and claim, reclaim Sansa as his wife, so then he could presumably become king of Winterfell. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I see, I see. That makes sense. Um, okay, so let's talk some more what-ifs. We don't have a ton of time left. No. Uh, there's a few things that we missed. As usual, there's just too much to cover. But we'll talk about some fun what-ifs here, because that's, uh, you know, that's a... There, that's that's a lot of what this comes down to. We have a lot of pro plots in progress. We don't know, we can't analyze them through, through their completion because they haven't been completed yet. So there's a lot of what ifs, and this is a, this, it's always fun to talk about what ifs. I think it's not something we do a lot on the show, but uh, it really I think it fits here. So let's start with some of the some of the incoming powers. What if Aegon, whether he's real or not, that doesn't really matter. What if he does ally with Dorne? We, we kind of expect that to happen. I think, I think predicting him to ally with Dorne is probably the simpler question. So we'll, we'll take both sides of it. What do you guys think will happen if Aegon and Arianne get along or they, they otherwise ally? What do you think that means for the rest of Westeros, keeping in mind what that faction would look like? So we'll start well, just real quickly. You've got Dorne. You've got the Golden Company. You've got Aegon. Uh, we don't know whether Daenerys will be a part of that. Let's just, let's just keep her out of the equation for now. They've already conquered a lot of the Stormlands. So let's say we've got Dorne, the Stormlands, and the Golden Company sort of as a faction uh, united. Now, what, what kind of damage could a faction like that do? Steve? Um, I think it would be a lot of damage, but without the dragons of Danny's, I mean, that's what really united Westeros in the first place was the dragons. It wasn't Aegon, it wasn't Nymeria or, or anyone else. It was the dragons that united Westeros. So without that, they're not going to get much beyond the Stormlands, to be honest, in my opinion. That's my opinion. 
Okay, yeah, I think I think even with that, even if you like roughly tally up the numbers there, they, they wouldn't even that strength isn't even enough to match what the reach has. Although I think they the, this this our our new Ford of Fable faction here has has more to say for itself as far as leadership, maybe. Um, what do you think, Kenneth? Uh, I I'm going to I'm going to go against the grain here. I'm going to reject the notion that they truly ally themselves at all. I think Ariane will be the person who reveals that Aegon is a fake, um, and I I think she may pretend to go along with him, but I think ultimately she's going to be the tool for Daenerys Targaryen to serve up the proof that he is in fact a paper dragon. And not a real Targaryen. I'm glad you. I'm glad you worded it that way because it has to involve Daenerys somehow because she has been foretold to be the slayer of lies, and I got to think that Aegon's parentage is possibly one of the biggest lies that we're dealing with. And so, if she's going to be the one to out it, I could see that coming through, Arianne. That's that's clever. I had not. I certainly hadn't thought. I like it. Yeah. Okay. I think it's. I think ultimately it's female power. I think Ariane will ultimately ally herself with Daenerys, especially once she realizes that Aegon is an imposter. A lot of our what ifs have come from. Uh, we've already talked touched on some of this. A lot of the what ifs stem from what will happen if Doran dies. So the the situation with Aegon, it would be a lot different given whether or not Doran is still alive. If, if, if it's up to Ariane entirely, you know, versus if it's up to Doran, that it could go a lot of different ways. I think, I wonder, is it possible that, Dor that Doran gets its best case scenario where they have the full alliance of Doran plus the Stormlands plus the Golden Company plus Danny and Aegon? That, could that happen? Could they get all of those together like that? If they did, it would certainly be the mightiest yeah. army. In Westeros. I don't think so. Without without mm -hmm. Doran, without Doran, Doran is the key piece in putting mm -hmm. it all together. If he's not there, it's all going to fall apart. And that's my opinion. Okay, what do you think, Kenneth? I agree with I agree with Steve. I think I think Doran is the hand that holds it all together. But by the same token, I don't think it's necessarily bad if that alliance isn't held together. I think it's more interesting and more. Uh, truthful in a way if um, if if Doran dies and let the chips fall where they fall and I feel like Arianne will have a baptism through some real fire as a leader if she has to face that sort of um, of of uh, of conflict so I have a question for you then Ken are you willing to let all those poor peasants die <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. They're just text peasants. They're not real people. Yeah. <laughs> pages two fifty two and two fifty six. Uh, kill them all, I say. So kill them all. Some ways. Is it possible that Doran Martell isn't? Doesn't die of old age, or doesn't die of his illnesses, oh, doesn't no. die of gout and depression. He might certainly the news of Quentin is going to affect his health negatively. I I say I I, I, I boldly predict that Doran Martell will be dead within the first two hundred pages of the Winds of Winter. Awesome. Okay, that's a, that is a bold prediction. I I, I think there's a good chance you're right about that. Oh, that's a good one. I think he. What about I, assassination? Could he be assassinated in those first two hundred pages? Oh no I no think no! He could. 
I think it's possible. Well, I don't that's think true. that's what's going to happen, but it could happen. The foreshadowing of the real hotel being sent away, I think, is something potentially. That oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to say he dies the night he hears of Quentin's death. Like, he just yeah. dies of a broken heart. But I like your idea, Aziz, with, with the foretelling or with the... Um, with a setup that Hoda has been sent away and Doran is at his most vulnerable without his pit bull by his side. Um, I feel like uh, it could be that Doran is uh, killed by shifty means. How secure is the water gardens anyway? I tried to look that up and that's where he spends most of his time. It doesn't seem like, you know, he's got guards there obviously, but it's not like some sort of, you know, really kind of fortress. How, how, awful, how awful would it be if, if if Darkstar wasn't actually hiding at High Hermitage, and he was actually, you know, he, he since it's a mountain fortress, you can imagine he has some sort of secret escape, or maybe he never even went there in the first place. What if he's out in the loose somewhere, and he now that Hota is gone, he he brings in some sort of small like commando unit type thing, goes in and kills Doran, and maybe even like something brutal happens, it gets worse, and a bunch of children die, something really awful like that. I can see something like that happening. But the only but I think, thing, right? I think it's more likely that he gets the news of Quentin, and that's what just his heart just he just drops dead or it kills him. The depression kills him shortly after. On a side note, I have to say the water gardens have always seemed like a pedophile's wet dream to me. Uh, <laughs> literally wet. Uh, <laughs> I feel dirty now. I want to take a shower. Oh my god. Isn't it though all these little half clothed children just running around? I didn't even like reading it. And my head hadn't gone there, but now I'm there. I'm a sick, twisted puppy. I can't help apparently, it. Apparently. <laughs> oh my goodness. Where's the limit how much you come on here? <laughs> There's anything else? Something else I just saw in my notes here, trying to steer away from this topic. Uh, something else I just noticed in my notes that we didn't talk about. Something about Tyene. What if yeah. she's able to convince the High Septon that Sir Robert Strong is what he is? That he's some sort of animated unholy monster? What would that do for the Lannister's cause if, if, if uh, Cersei is outed as someone using this like necromantic monster? I mean, that wouldn't be good. I, I haven't thought on that. And the first thing, the first one I have on that is that, all right, Cersei's already legitimized the faith militant. Yeah. She's made them powerful. Right. So now, if she does that to the High Septon, the High Septon is going to have to re agree and say, yes, he is our warrior kind of thing. That's not going to go well at all from any land. If she finds out what the truth of him is, then, yeah. It's going to be very dirty. Because you know their attention is going to be drawn to him. Think about the scene. What happened when, when there, the skull shows up in, in Dorne? A couple people are like, how do we even know that's Gregor's skull? And, and uh, someone else brings up to the point, well, first, that skull is really huge. Second of all, what good would it do to conceal the fact that Sir Gregor is dead? He's eight feet tall. If the guy is actually out there alive, the truth is going to come out. You can't hide that guy. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to see they're going to see this eight-foot-tall Kingsguard who never talks, and they're going to be like, wait a second. Who wears another eight-foot-tall knight? Come on now. <laughs> And, and, and therein lies the whole mystery, mystery, I should say in quotes, of Robert Strong. Yeah. At Gregor Klain, Klain, 
Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure it is. They're gonna yeah. have they're gonna wonder even if even if it's they're gonna think it's him even if you know it's somehow not, which I, I don't think there's much a chance that it is of him. No. But he's he's so they're gonna react to that. That's gonna be one of the first things they see, and that could cause them to maybe even lose their cool. I don't know. Maybe that maybe that causes them to be like more angry. They're like, look at that. They just how stupid do they think we are? He's right there. What game is standing right there? And they sent his this fake into the gates. That could that could really get them off, you know. That could really get them angry and, and cause them to act more hastily. I'm not sure, but yeah. That, Here's a new fight of Robert Strong is going to cause a reaction. <laughs> that, that that's true. Here's a new what if for you guys, and it's about Nymeria. What if she becomes Cersei's next lesbian lover? <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. I mean, not for not. I mean, because we know that Cersei's willing to go there. She went there in Feast. Oh yeah, she did. Feast for yeah, Crows. Same yeah, 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 yeah. So what if? So what if Nymeria seduces Cersei as part of her infiltration? Interesting. That would be something. That that would actually be very interesting. I think. You know, you should write George R. R. Martin and say, "Hey, guess what." <laughs> <laughs> and we need. I think, and, I think that would be mind-boggling to see her laying out on page about how she starts seducing her and this, that, and the other, and all of a sudden, all these other things start happening in court. Oh man, that would be just crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay, I think. Oh, oh go ahead. I think we definitely need a POV lesbian seduction chapter. That's what we need. <laughs> can, can we even like cripples, bastards, and broken things? <laughs> That's right. Sadly, That's... Martin has told us that there will not be any more new point of views other than epilogues and possible prologues. So uh, I don't know if we'll have that chance. Uh, but he also says there's probably only. He also said there'd only be five books to this series initially, or six, or whatever. And so he may have to change his mind on that. Although I kind of doubt he'd change his mind just to throw in a lesbian love scene. But hey, you never know. Yeah. What would happen? Speaking of prologue, epilogue. What? How? How, how, how sad would it be if, if the pro next prologue is Ariel Hota? <laughs> it's like we get to see her. Like, uh oh, <laughs> sorry, Hota, <laughs> or perhaps oh, okay. the epilogue. Oh man, that would suck. Because <laughs> we know, you know what's going to happen if they're the prologue character. They're doomed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, we're talking about Ken. You're more than welcome to join us. We're talking about doing a epilogue and prologue segment episode of, uh, of the History of Westerners podcast. When we talk about all of the epilogues and prologues, which, by the way, they don't start happening until Storm of Swords. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's no epilogue. Yeah, Storm of Swords is the first epilogue. That's right. Yeah, Before that, yeah, they're yeah. putting chapters from the next book. <laughs> so I have a theory that Hoda's like Hoda's going to be one of the characters who lives until the end. Um, oh. I think. Yeah, I don't think he's going to die. I think he lives to be Arianne's bodyguard into the future. Interesting. Yeah. I, I same way about Davos. Yeah, Davos. Davos would be. I would love it if Davos survived the series. That would be great. He is. He is deserving more, more so than most characters. Perhaps the most so of, of, getting to settle down and have a nice finish to his life. He is, you know, been a good guy, so loyal and everything. Yeah. And one of the white and one of the wolves. <laughs> some Stark. Some, some Stark has to have a happy ending. <laughs> some, some wolf. 
Oh, actual wolf. Okay, yeah. Wolf, wolf has to survive. Yeah. I'll be happy with Shaggy Dog. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> I'm rooting for Nymeria to be the wolf who lives. Yeah, go Nymeria. Yeah. She's, she's out and about right now. <laughs> yeah. Leading her wolves around the wolf yeah. party. Yep. Um, As we assume. One, uh, let's see, do we have anything left? Do we miss anything? Do you guys, is there any issue or any topics that we didn't cover? Any plots, Dornish plots that we didn't touch on? No, I think we're already out of time, but. Yeah. We started a little late, uh, but we should, you know, I don't know. You, you got a better hand at the time than I do. Um, so, yeah, I guess we should start wrapping it up. Um, Ken, thanks for being here. We, uh, you're. Awesome. We got you entered like just on this call. You brought at least a couple of things to my attention that I hadn't even considered. So I'm going to be thinking more about this even after we're done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you guys. I, as you know, I love Dorn. The Martells are my favorite family, my favorite house. I love the sand snakes. They captured my imagination. Um, the the sample Ariane chapter that I know you guys talked about last week. Um, I was so glad to read that. I feel like she's growing up. You know what I mean? Like I oh, feel yeah. like the character has really progressed from the spoiled little girl that we met in uh, Feast for Crows. So, um, so yeah, I love Dorn, and I really appreciate the opportunity to come on your podcast and uh, chat about them. Right on, right on. Thank you very much. We appreciate your input, and uh, by all means, I mean we're happy to participate in your podcast anytime you want. Um, again, well, podcast community, we're a tight group here, aren't we? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, you can scan on Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. These guys on blog as well as a podcast. You can find that on iTunes under the same name, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Um, I believe you even have a webpage on uh, Facebook, don't you? I do. There's a Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things uh, uh, Facebook page. Uh, you mentioned the blog. Um, people can reach me on Twitter at KL Bartster and uh, via email at cbbpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, uh, I definitely appreciate you guys mentioning that. Um, but what people should really do is download all of the back the back episodes of the history of Westeros because you guys put on a really good show. Well, thanks, Ken. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, we, we try, you know, and we just put it out, you know, mostly we do it because we love the subject. And if anyone wants to listen, by all means, listen. Well, um, listeners are gravy. <laughs> feel free to rate us. You can rate us on iTunes. You can uh, go on to our, uh, our Facebook page, Westeros History, on Facebook, Facebook, Dot com, obviously, and uh, uh, what else we got? Well, history at gmail.com. You can email us. Send us some bad, awful emails saying you guys suck. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, what else we got, Aziz? Uh, let's see. I think you've covered it pretty well. Definitely, our, um, I, I'd like to point out that we've been getting some very good feedback on iTunes and Facebook, and that, that's always pleasant. If, if you uh, want to join the ranks, people who have given us feedback, obviously we prefer it to be positive, but we, we don't expect you to lie. Uh, tell us what you think. Tell us um, what you think of the format, things you could uh, suggest, suggestions for improvements. We're, we're pretty good about taking suggestions. We're, we don't have a really well-developed format here, I would say. We usually just kind of get together and talk. We've got some loose ideas on what we're going to talk about. We've got a subject and a, whether or not it's going to have spoilers. But beyond that, we just kind of throw it out there. So... 
we're always looking for ways to improve. Uh, we, we worked, obviously, as you know, a lot of you who, who are regular listeners know we put a lot of effort into improving the quality of the podcast as far as its audio quality and its listenability. Um, and we've gotten a lot of good feedback on our success in that regard, but that shouldn't mean uh, you should hesitate to let us know if there's something that you think is a problem. So exactly. that's all I have to say on that subject. I think... Um, Exactly, and uh, oh, thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, one thing I forgot to put in there was our Twitter contact is uh, Westeros History at Westeros History on Twitter. Um, that's another way you can reach us. So if you have any questions, concerns, problems, issues, you want to just badmouth us, topic suggestions is a big one. Oh, topics is bad suggestions. Yeah, I mean this Dorn episode came from a topic suggestion. Um, yeah, people were really asking about us more. Dornish. People, people were clamoring for Dorn, and we, we, we did our best. <laughs> so that was all me. History's <laughs> <laughs> <his> agents. <laughs> so, I, I paid all those people. <laughs> <laughs> Ken made fake face, Facebook profiles, liked our page, and then posted on there. <laughs> That's exactly. right. Yeah, I mean, uh, you have any questions? You want to know about the Great North of uh, Beyond the Wall? You want to know about far, far, far eastern Essos? Just let us know. We'll do our research. We'll do our best to try to cover it. So just let us know on any of those forums. And uh, again, this is Steve for the Italian here in Los Angeles. Again, I have Aziz, my buddy. Hey, folks. That'll be it for today. Thanks for listening. And, of course, our special guest, Ken. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's been a joy to be on your show again. Thank you very much, and uh, that's it for the show, so I'm going to end it right now.